Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works in social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Kenda McDonald, and we're going to talk about neuroscience and marketing. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Kenda McDonald. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Kenda McDonald. If you don't know who Kenda is, she's the author of Hack the Buyer Brain. She's also the CEO of Automation Ninjas, a consultancy that helps small to mid-sized businesses create demand with marketing automation. And her course is called The Secret to My Demand Generation Success. Kenda, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me. Super awesome to have you here today. Today, Kenda and I are going to explore how neuroscience can help us become better marketers. Now, before we go there, Kenda, I want to hear your story. How'd you get into neuroscience and how'd you get into marketing? Start wherever you want to start. Oh, <laughs> we're going to start right at the beginning. So I'm from South Africa originally, from Cape Town in South Africa, and I got offered a job placement in the British Police Force. And I was offered an opportunity to move to the UK. That's where I live now. And basically to study forensic psychology through the British Police Force. And a really strange situation ended up not actually working out because of the way sort of naturalization works in the UK. So I went, put myself through uni, didn't want my brain to rot. And I thought I would, you know, just bide my time, put myself through uh, my degree in forensic psychology um, while I was waiting for the naturalization process. Explain forensic psychology, because I know what it means, but not everybody understands what that phrase forensic psychology means. So uh, it's one of those horrible umbrella terms where it actually deals with anything to do with the criminal justice system and psychology. So it could be anything from probably the thing everybody knows the most about, which is criminal profiling. And that's what I was studying. I was studying criminal profiling for repeat offenders in various different nasty things. That was my job, what, what I was gunning for. And then it goes all the way through to the other side as well to like providing psychology and resources to inmates, et cetera, et cetera. So it's anything to do with psychology in the criminal justice system. But I was going for criminal profiling. And so I thought, I'll put myself through uni. I'll make sure that we streamline the process, get ourselves there a little bit faster. So when I'd naturalized after five years, I could join the police force a little bit earlier. And I was an international student, so I had to pay my way through university. And one of the jobs that I got was working as a PA in a marketing automation company. And within about sort of like 
eight months, I was the operations manager in that marketing automation company. And it was just a really good juxtaposition of time. It was, you know, at the, the point that I really started working in marketing, I was doing my neuroscience module in uni and looking at how the brain makes decisions. And I was able to turn to my boss and go, you know, the way that we're creating campaigns and the content, it's it's not going to help people make choices. It's just not going to help. The neuroscience doesn't support it. You know, we're, we're doing unsubstantiated stuff and that's why it's not working. Unfortunately, he wasn't interested unless the idea came from him. It wasn't it wasn't a goer. So when he shut his business down, I said to my husband at the time, I was like, why don't we start an agency? Like, why don't we try? And that was it. <laughs> I haven't looked back since then. So. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit more about the agency. So you decided to go off on your own and start an agency. And what were you doing? Well, we were kind of in the beginning, I was a little bit too scared to bring in the psychology stuff. I was very clear that I was in my early 20s. No one was going to take advice from a fresh faced 20 year old. And so I was just doing we were doing bog standard implementation. We were doing it for Infusionsoft at that time, which is now Keep. So we were building out marketing automation systems for people. And I am the kind of person who can't keep quiet about stuff. So I eventually started sort of like bringing stuff in with my clients and being like, okay, this is not going to work because of these reasons. Why don't we try something this way? And the more I did that and the more people learned about the psychology, the more excited people got and the more they wanted to push things. So the more I started showing them, okay, well, if we created our campaign and we adapted things this way and we added these extra emails in and you created this blog post, we could help positively influence a purchasing decision. And we started doing more and more of that and people wanted to learn more and more. So I ended up writing a book and pulling together all the research I'd done on the side together, which went great. It was an international bestseller very quickly. And yeah, we kind of just flew from there. And now I get to travel around and talk on stages and write books and write articles for journals and all sorts of fun stuff. It's good. It's great. I love it. So you started the agency, was it Automation Ninjas or was that a different agency? No, it was Automation Ninjas. Got it. And tell us a little bit about like who Automation Ninjas is for today. Give us a little bit more on that and kind of what you're doing outside of just speaking on stages and stuff. I have a passion for small businesses. I know it's so like everybody says that, blah, blah, blah. Like I get that. But because I was a small business and that's like the world that I started in, we originally started creating our services for small businesses. Very quickly, I realized that I needed to work with marketing teams to really have the work that we do most effective from a consultancy standpoint. You know, I can give you guys the best ideas possible, but if you can't execute them, we're going to have a bad time all around. So we adapted and started working more with sort of medium to large to larger enterprise. And that's sort of where our sweet spot sits. Uh, the businesses that have got a marketing team in place where I can advise on the type of content, the type of emails, the, the type of lead magnets, et cetera, et cetera. And the stuff can actually get done. I then grew our business out. So we had a content team and an implementation team as well. So that, you know, for the businesses that were too busy, we could help with that. And then the small businesses were still coming in. So I took a step back and I ended up creating an academy, like a a membership side where I teach everything that I do with my larger clients, but like 
so that you can do it yourself. And that's why we straddle that small to medium enterprise, um, because that's that's our happy spot. Those are the people that we can help best and you know, really just help them sort their content out in the best way possible. There are a lot of marketers right now that are listening that are intrigued by psychology and neuroscience. And there are plenty who are very skeptical and are like, I don't think that stuff works. I don't even know why I need to pay attention to it. So why don't you make the case to those that are either unaware of why neuroscience is so important to marketing or are skeptical? What do they need to know? So they should keep listening to learn from us today. <laughs> well, <laughs> if there's a brain involved with your purchasing decisions, and hopefully there is a brain involved with your audience, you need to know how it works. Full stop. The challenge with a lot of marketing is we do stuff because it sounds cool. And also we get really excited about stuff. Marketers are so bad for jumping on the next trend bandwagon. We were like, yeah, let's let's do TikTok. But maybe no one, none of our audience is on TikTok, but we do it because we see someone else doing it effectively. And when you take a look at the psychology behind how we make purchasing decisions, how we decide to do stuff, and how the neuroscience of the brain works when we're making those decisions, it becomes your North Star. And you can cut out a lot of fluff and you can focus on the things that you should be working on. And it takes it takes away all of that nonsense that we have to deal with. So not only are you actually learning how the brain works, which is helpful for yourself as well, but you create content that's actually valuable for your audience. You create campaigns that convert better. You get longer ROI as well. If you're helping people make decisions in the most appropriate way possible, you're going to get better ROI from that and higher customer lifetime value, which is what we all want. Yeah, there is there is no better way to do it. And everything we're going to talk about today, and this is why I love neuroscience and not just psychology, because there's a difference between the two. It's validated by actual studies of people, you know, looking at how the brain works and, and figuring out why it's doing it that way. It's not just a theory. I think what I'm hearing you say is everybody's brain kind of works in a certain way or a certain pattern, or most people's do. And if we as marketers and entrepreneurs and creators, depending on what scope everybody's coming from, can understand how the brain of our prospects and customers work, we can increase the likelihood we're going to find the right audience. Is that really what I'm hearing you say? And when that happens, it makes everything easier, right? 100%. 100%. The brain works in very consistent and surprising ways. And everybody's brain works in the same way. We have little small nuances that are different because of how we've been brought up um, or cultural differences. But from a decision-making perspective, the same parts of the brain are controlling the same different parts of that decision. And that works for everybody across the board. So when you understand that, you create more effective marketing. Yeah. And also when you understand that, you can also potentially put up barriers, if you will, to being persuaded to do things that you don't want to do, right? I mean, from a consumer perspective, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> these things can be used for good or they can be used for bad. Is that fair? That is very fair. And that is one of my biggest bugbears when I go to conferences. So I'm the spicy person. I'm the firecracker. <laughs> I go and watch people talk about psychology and marketing and very often they're manipulating people into making choices that people wouldn't make in normal circumstances. And guess what happens? People get buyer's remorse and they feel iffy about your brand and your products and you don't get that customer lifetime value. You don't get those quality relationships and you also don't get the audience that you want. 
Whereas the type of stuff we're talking about here is it's how to contribute to the decision-making process. It's not about manipulation. It's about understanding what the brain is doing. And it's also foolhardy for us to think that we can overcome and manipulate people. We are pattern recognition machines. We will figure out that you're doing something dodgy. And when we figure that out, we're going to be angry. That's not the type of consumer that you want. You want to help your consumers. You want to build longer relationships with them so that they stick around with you for longer. So we're talking about positive influence. We're not talking about manipulating things like cognitive bias, et cetera, et cetera. We're instead talking about how do you de-bias? How do you help people overcome those corruptions that the brain makes and help them make better choices? So we're using powers for good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, let's start with your strategy. Like what exactly is your strategy? How'd you figure all this stuff out? Ah, well, first and foremost, it's not my strategy. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about uh, Professor Brian Knudsen and his colleagues at Stanford University. A lot of what we're talking about is built around this experiment. So he did a fantastic experiment where him and his colleagues took a group of people and they put them in fMRI scanners, which is just a scanner that images the brain and has a look at relative activation in the brain. So where the brain has got a lot of electrical impulses, where it's sending a lot of blood, et cetera. So we can see what the brain is doing whilst, you know, live effectively, which is very exciting. So they took people, they put them in the fMRI scanners and they got them to make a purchasing decision. So they gave them an arbitrary amount of money and then they showed them three different things. They showed them a product that they might want to purchase. They showed them the pricing of the product. And then they allowed them to push a button to say yes or no, whether they buy that with the money that they'd been given to make that purchase with. So a really fantastic way to see exactly what the brain is doing when it's making that purchasing decision. Now, first and foremost, when people saw a product that they wanted. Everything that we expected in psychology to happen, happened. The reward centers of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. We expect this. When you see something that you want, your brain gives you a dopamine hit. And dopamine is a drug that makes you take action, makes you desire something, but also makes you take action. So that's, that's what we expected. You see a product or service that you want, dopamine response, reward centers of the brain light up. Yes, good, uh, all happy. But it was when the pricing was seen that it was sort of through the cat amongst the pigeons in the psychology world. It was it was quite something. So we expected some very specific things to happen when pricing was shown. We expected prefrontal cortex activation, so the parts of the brain that are responsible for like higher level decision making, complicated maths, chess, that kind of stuff. We also expected to see a bunch of emotional center activation. This is a study everyone should go off and see. Antonio Damasio, another neuroscientist, did some fantastic work showing why emotion was indispensable to the decision-making process because it labels things as good or bad and it helps our brain decide. That is why benefits are so important in copywriting and in marketing. So we expected to see emotional center activation because of his work and prefrontal cortex activation. We didn't see either of those things. This was a surprise. Instead, the pain centers of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. So literally the part of the brain that deals with physical pain. So from breaking a leg or stubbing a toe through to losing a loved one or being bullied in school. So either physical or emotional pain. Um, that's the part of the brain that lit up when we saw pricing. And this was really, really surprising. And a stark reminder as well that the brain did not evolve to buy stuff. It evolved to survive. Now, the closest we've been able to get to understanding why it does that 
It's the same thing happens when we share food. When we share food, pain centers activate. You are giving away a resource. You give away a resource, you're going to reduce your chances of survival. The brain does not want you to do that. So it's seeing money as a resource that you are giving away. It's reducing your chances of survival and the brain has a little freak out. So that was really exciting and different to us. The, the why does pricing and pain come up in this decision-making process? Why are we not thinking in a more logical manner? So that was already exciting enough as it was, but it got cooler because as people were going through that decision-making process, the neuroscientists could watch the scans and go, that person is going to buy that product and that person isn't. And that was what gave us what we called the purchase formula. Depending on the relative activation of the areas of the brain, either reward and pain activation, they can say within a significant amount, so higher than chance, that people were going to buy or people weren't going to buy. And so the purchase formula is this. It'll be in the show notes. Don't worry. Um, but it is that the likelihood of someone purchasing your product or your service is equal to the amount of reward activation that we get minus the amount of pain activation that we get. And that is the purchase formula. And this means that in marketing and in sales, we do totally the wrong thing. Because what we do is we focus on pricing. We focus on minimizing the price. All the reward and all the good things about our products, we always put it in the guise of it's worth the price that you're paying because the price is this. But look at all this amazing stuff that you're going to get. Now, the challenge with that is that you're trying to minimize the amount of pain activation that the brain is getting. And we can't do that. It's how the brain understands money. It's how we understand that. We can't change that. We can, we can reduce it a little bit, but it's not the thing we have control over. The thing we have huge amounts of control over as marketers is that reward activation. So we can increase the amount of reward activation because reward comes from something called associative recall in memory. And that is all those memories that are stored in association to your brand and your product and your service and the problem that you're solving for your audience. If there is strong associative recall in memory, you get higher reward activation. So if you are showing up repeatedly and you are helping businesses, if you are showing up repeatedly and you are solving problems for them, if you're showing up repeatedly and being good to an audience and helping them with your content, you get higher associative recall in memory, which means you get higher reward activation. And that's the important thing. That's where your content needs to focus. That's our power. So, yes, we have a lot to do when it comes to that. But that purchase formula massively affects everything that you do in your marketing, from the amount of nurture that you create, the types of lead magnet that you create, the way that you look at the journey that your audience is going through. You can't hop in just at the moment of purchase and expect to steal the prospect out of from underneath your competitors. You don't have that high reward activation. So you've got to start earlier on in the process. So just so I can wrap my brain around this, this study was done. Basically, there's two parts to this, right? There's the reward and then there's the pain. And the reward is what we can control, but the pain we cannot. Is it true that we can help minimize the pain or is yes. that there that is true? Okay. Because I'm thinking that I see so many things that so many people do like uh, guarantees and refunds and all that kind of stuff which I would imagine help reduce the likelihood of the pain, right? So Fascinatingly enough, how were they able to predict the likelihood that someone actually would make a purchase? Is it because the pain activation was lower in some people 
And was the pain activation lower because they did something to make it lower or, or is that something beyond the control of the experiment? It's beyond the control of that experiment. There've been other experiments since then, but basically the the way that they would be able to predict is they would see high reward activation and low pain activation. And that person, yes, high likelihood of purchase. People who had low reward activation didn't really want the product or service and high pain activation pricing was too high or pricing was too low. Reassuringly expensive is a thing. And effectively they would go, no, that person's that person's not going to buy. So yeah, you can definitely mitigate and you can limit the amount of pain that someone is feeling in, in to a certain respect, but you cannot get rid of it. And we shouldn't be focusing all of our energies by, by all means, please make sure that you have your pricing tables, make sure that you are explaining to people why it's worth the price, make sure that you do these things, but it is not the be all and end all of your marketing. And it's not the thing that's going to influence the purchase and influence subsequent purchases in, in the most effective way. That's going to be your reward activation every single time. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is no matter how excited people get about the product, once they see the price, there's going to be a chunk of them that are just going to like, feel like they just got punched in the gut is really what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so let's talk about the awareness stage of uh, marketing and how we can kind of put some of this stuff to use. Effectively, when you are trying to put this theory to use and you're trying to go, okay, how do I actually apply this to my marketing in a practical sense? The easiest way that we can look at it is we can look at how people go about making that purchase decision before they get to the point of purchase, which is where this experiment was done. We actually utilize uh, Eugene Schwartz's stages of awareness. So Eugene Schwartz was an advertiser back in the 1970s. He wrote a fantastic book called Breakthrough Advertising. And it was all about how he discovered with his ad agency that there were these different stages that different types of ads were appropriate for different stages. What he didn't realize during that time, because we didn't have the neuroscience to back it up, was he was actually following what we call the general learning process that the brain goes through when it is encoding and storing information. So I use his process because it's way more fun. It's way more marketing friendly than the general learning process. But effectively, everyone starts off unaware that they have a problem or an issue and therefore a need for a product or a service. There might be symptoms of that problem. It might show up. And then there's a catalyst. Something happens and we become problem aware. We realize that we have a problem. And that's the that's what Google calls a zero moment of truth, the point at which we turn to the Internet for help. And that's where a lot of people come across your business for the first time very often. Now, the challenge here is that, remember, reward is relative to everybody. And we want to increase the reward activation that the brain has. If we start selling straight away when people are problem aware, we are not matching what the brain sees as being valuable. So we need to be very clear that it doesn't just go from problem aware to purchase. There are other stages. So people start off problem aware. And at that point, they're looking for information. They want to understand the widths and breadths of their problem. And that's where we can be helpful with educational content. As they learn more about their problem and become satisfied that they understand what their problem is, they start to become solution aware. So they start to look for ways to solve their problem. Solution aware is another massive research phase in which we're now looking for, okay, 
I want to know how I can go about solving my problem. We're still not necessarily interested in buying something, but at that point in time, we're looking like, can I hire someone in to help me? Can I do this by myself? What are all the various different ways that I can go about doing it? And we want to understand what the marketplace looks like at that point. So we're looking broad speaking. And then we start to do something very important. We start to create our own criteria for what is good and what is bad for us. And that's when we start to become product aware. And when we become product aware, we're now looking at individual options. We, we're going, no, don't want to hire someone and I want to do it myself. So what different ways can I do it? Can I go for training? Can I do this? Can I do that? Et cetera, et cetera. And at that stage, we're starting to look at products. We're starting to look for, for, more, for more information. And as we just like discover the products and the things that are going to help us and we built our criteria for what is good and what is bad, we then start to become most aware. And most aware is when we reach out to sales. Most aware is when we're looking at sales pages, we're looking for pricing information. And we're trying to figure out whether you are going to be the company that we buy from versus somebody else. And so at each and every single one of those stages, our behavior is very, very different. And that's where like the profiling comes in, right? The types of information that we're looking for and the behavior that we're displaying are very, very different at each of those stages. And therefore, what's valuable to us at each of those stages is totally different. And so if we are really clear on what the awareness journey is for our audience all the way through those stages, we can provide the right information at the right stages. You then get a higher associative recall and memory, and that is how you start to properly affect the decision-making process and affect that purchasing decision in a positive way by providing the right information at the right stages for people and helping our audience appropriately depending on where they are. So we get in front of the right people with the right information. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do, not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's go through each one of these. Let's start with unaware. There are people listening right now who work for businesses or offer services that the world doesn't know they need yet, right? Yeah. For example, artificial intelligence prompt writers, right? Mm. I mean, like people are becoming aware that such a thing exists, but they're, you know, they don't even understand that they need such a thing right now, right? So, so for people that are in new, new industries or taking something to a new industry that's never existed before, what do we need to be thinking about from a 
you know, neuroscience perspective, like what kinds of content and marketing do we do to those who are unaware? This is probably the hardest stage, definitely the hardest stage, because the brain's not paying attention. We can only pay attention to a certain amount of information around us. We can't pay attention to everything. And the stuff that isn't relevant to us, we filter out. So another reason why it's really important that you you key into the awareness stages. So it's not useful at this point showing up to people and going, this is your problem, because they don't know that that's their problem. So the brain filters that out. At this point in time, what's better to do is to pick on the symptoms. There are symptoms that people are feeling for their problem, even if they haven't realized it's the problem yet. Your job when you are marketing to unaware people is to take them to the next step. It is to be the catalyst. It is to provide the thing that helps people realize that they have a problem. So highlight those symptoms and don't be afraid to piggyback off of other things. You know, you will see tons of companies that did this when they took things to market. So my favorite is the little pods. What is the company's name? Nespresso. Yes. So Nespresso did this excellently. They had a massively, can you imagine a world? Yeah. Keurig also did it, you know, Keurig. Was yes. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like imagine a world like 10 years ago. Yeah. Nobody knew they needed coffee instantly. No in one pods, knew. Right? No, no one knew. So when they went to market, they had real difficulty explaining to people that you need to pay. I think it was like 10 cents at that time for a coffee pod instead of 0.1 cents for a cup of coffee. Like you need to pay that so that you can have coffee at home. People were like, this is insane. So going straight to the supermarket and putting their product right next to something that was significantly cheaper and all you're doing is seeing price activation. So how did they increase the reward activation when they have a non-problem aware audience, an unaware audience? They were super clever. They piggybacked off of baristas. So they piggybacked off of the fact that when you go to a coffee shop, and you can see this in all of their early advertising, all of the advertising had beautifully made coffee in cups, like you get at a barista when you go and you sit inside a coffee shop. Yeah, George Clooney wasn't a bad thing either in all of their advertising in the beginning. For any of you who remember the original Nespresso ads, they had George Clooney all over it. But the idea was that they were showing you that this is barista-made coffee, but at home. So rather than paying $3 for barista coffee, you pay $0.10 for a coffee pod. And suddenly, everything's in a very different frame. So they'd taken that symptom of wanting that luxury, but having it at home and not having to go to a coffee shop, and they totally reframed everything. So they're a great example of focusing on reward activation in a different way and piggybacking off someone else. They piggybacked off baristas, they piggybacked off Starbucks in order to take their marketing to the next level. So pick on the symptom and feel free to piggyback on someone else. If you need to draw parallels in an industry where it's brand new and, and hasn't broken through. But for, for the rest of us, there might be specific symptoms that we can pick on and we can talk about to become that catalyst to help people realize that they've got a problem. And I would imagine you're you're pretty much focusing all your energy on education at this point, right? I mean, because people need to be educated and before they ever are going to go buy one of these things at your local grocery store. What about the problem aware? When people are problem aware, you know, you kind of hinted at a little bit, but let's go, let's go into a little bit more depth on what kind of content we need to be creating. Cause this is clearly still not ready to buy. Right. I know I have a problem, like maybe I need to lose weight or maybe I need to get glasses, but I'm not going to deal with it right now. 
Problem Aware is probably my favorite stage. And I think it's my favorite stage because it is the easiest stage to research. So Problem Aware is where SEO is your friend. So if you have access to anything that's going to allow you to do a little bit of keyword research, so think of your SEM rushes of the world, um, even think of just starting to type things into Google and seeing what comes up as suggested searches. Problem Aware, people will tell you what's a problem with their search behavior. So if you just type in marketing automation into a keyword research tool, you'll come up with a whole bunch of questions that the keyword research tool will tell you is a problem for people. Of course, you can ask people questions as well. A problem where it's such an easy stage to research because of that. But the easiest way to do this is to sit back and think about your past clients and think about your past customers and talk to them as well. Um, and basically just go, why did you start looking for something, you know, what what was that issue? We will all know the problems that our audiences face, but keyword research tools will help you if you don't have access to a large people, a large pool of people to ask for. But you're going to want to focus on what those challenges are for your audience. So is it the case of the example that you gave that you want to lose weight, you've tried a whole bunch of different things, and none of them are working. So you want to lose weight, but you've done a bunch of cardio, you could create a great blog post on why cardio isn't going to help you lose weight or why a calorie deficit is the way forward, but not too much of a calorie deficit. So the thing is, you want to focus directly on the questions that people are asking. And we don't need to go any further than that. I see marketers make this mistake all the time. We try and be clever with our titles for blog posts at Problemware. Don't bother. Because the audience is keying very specifically into a problem. And we want to flag that problem and we want to show it to them and be like, we have the answer to this. So whatever the question that your audience is asking, whether they're asking it to Google, whether they're asking it to you, what is that question that they're asking? What's the thing that's keeping them awake at night? And let's talk about that um, and highlight it really, really clearly. So we're just going to create content on all the questions people ask. And that's a fantastic way to start with problem aware. I know the answer to this, but I'm not going to presume all my audience does. <laughs> Why does answering everybody's questions in video or in articles or in podcasts, what in the world does that do to help my business ultimately achieve its objectives? Oh. <laughs> how, how deep into the neuroscience do we want to go? With as this deep one? as you want to um, go, Kenda. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm going to sneak in one extra little piece like you will notice if you've ever done they ask you answer with the lovely marcus sheridan yes. um and that kind of stuff it's absolutely a phenomenal way to create content answering people's questions it helps people assure them that you are an authority you help build that relationship with people you help them feel safe and also they can see that you know your stuff etc etc all of that good stuff but from a neuroscience perspective we have two systems that we use to understand the world around us, system one and system two. This is the lovely Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, the Nobel Prize winning psychologists. So they won the Nobel Prize in economics for showing how we pay attention to the world and how we do it really badly and how that negatively affects our decision-making processes. So they have um, dual process theory and how dual process theory effectively causes cognitive biases. So we have these two different systems that we use to understand the world around us. Now, the thing is, one of the systems is in control most of the time and the other system is not. So they call it the, the pilot and the autopilot. And we like to 
think, because we are highly cognitive beings, we like to think that we are in control all of the time. It's actually our autopilot that is in control most of the day. So we spend 85% of our day in our autopilot. This is what people like to think of as the subconscious, right? And the subconscious or whatever autopilot, whatever we want to refer to it as, takes in around 40 million bits of information per second. Wow. Okay, so it's a lot. Whereas our pilot, which we only spend 15% of the day in, can only take in 40. <laughs> That's it. So 40 bits of information per second. So it is a massive discrepancy in the amount of data that we can take in. Um, our pilot uses a huge amount of calories. The brain does not want us to use calories because you might die. So let's not do that. So it shunts everything that it can to the autopilot. And the autopilot uses a series of rules and mental shortcuts to understand the world around us. Now, the autopilot is the one that is being given the job by the pilot to go and find a piece of information. So let's say you have a problem, Michael, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to type in this thing into Google. We cannot physically, with our pilot, read that page of search results. It's not possible. The autopilot has to scan it and decide what we pay attention to. So when you have a question that you are answering from your audience and you highlighted it really clearly, the autopilot goes, that's what I'm looking for. That's the question that I have. That's what I'm looking for. And if it's clever and it's esoteric and it's different, it doesn't pay attention to it. We filter it out. So you need to make things very, very easy for the autopilot. So I like to call the autopilot the minions from Despicable Me because, you know, they do one job very, very well and they run around and they cause chaos. And that is our brain. We're Gru and our brain is the minions effectively. So make your content minion friendly. So when you are answering questions, you are highlighting to the brain and the minions very, very clearly, this is the content that you need. So it's much easier to pay attention to. So just from a first perspective of getting the attention, questions work way better. But then, of course, you've got all that reward activation where you're answering the appropriate question that someone has. So you're giving them the information that they need and that they want to hear straight away without a whole bunch of other fluffs. You're getting all that higher reward activation, better associative recall. It is all good on so many different neuroscience levels. <laughs> so, yes, stick with the questions. Still. <laughs> At some point, you got you to gotta introduce the solution in this problem-aware stage when you're educating people, right? Because otherwise, if you don't, they'll say, thank you very much, goodbye, right? So how do we do that? Oh, this is, uh, this is my next favorite. Everything's my favorite. Have you noticed? All marketing Hey, is my we favorite. all have lots of favorites. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what we call daisy-chaining content. So you preempt behavior. So part of uh, criminal profiling is looking at behavior and going, because you have displayed this behavior, you fit in this box, and now I can preempt your behavior to the next step. It is no different in marketing. So we're looking at the fact that someone is problem aware and that we are answering that question. Now we're going to preempt that this is the next question that you have. So you can daisy chain your content. Let's say you're doing blogs and you can do this with videos and stuff as well. But let's say you're doing blogs, right? Because it's the easiest to do it with blogs. You answered the question. You've created a fantastic blog post, nice video inside there. You've done all the right stuff. Now at the end of the blog post, you go and you might have questions about different ways that you can solve this problem. So you're preempting the next question and taking them to the next piece of content. You can also, of course, put a lead magnet at the bottom of the content as well for the next step. So preempt that people are going to move into solution aware and transition them there. Now, don't try and do too much in one piece of content. 
you know, do give people an opportunity to consume some content and, and then go to another piece of content because you, you won't give yourself enough room uh, to actually answer questions fully, but take them to the next thing. You know how you make little daisy chains in, in the fields in summer and make a nice little crown? Do that with your content. Go from problem aware to solution aware and keep daisy chaining and breadcrumbing that content all the way through. And you'll give people a nice easy path to follow that's that they don't have to use lots of cognitive power to, to go down to find all the answers to all the questions that they have. Thank you so much for going down that rabbit hole with me. So we talked about the unaware and the problem aware and the solution aware presumes they don't know specifically what products to solve their problems. They just know that they need to solve a problem. I mean, is that right? Or like help distinguish because problem aware and solution aware, they sound kind of the same. I know I have a problem. I don't know how to solve it. Solution aware, presumably they know how to solve it, but they have options. Is that right? Well, when they're transitioning through from problem aware to, to solution aware, they're going, I understand my problem and I understand the repercussions of my problem if I don't solve it, et cetera, et cetera. Now I want to know how do I solve it and what are all the options available to me? So what is everything? So I always like to see solution aware as, a, as like a broad category for all the ways you can solve it. And then as we niche down and learn about all those ways, we want to learn a little bit deeper. That's when we go into product where we were like, okay, there were these three options within the, the broader category. I want to learn about this one. And this one is most applicable to me because of X, Y, Z. So our job in solutionware is to help people understand all the options available to them and what's going to work best for them and why. So we're helping set the scene for which products are going to be most appropriate for them. So we're helping them discern between different options so that they're not overwhelmed because solutionware is a very overwhelming stage because there's so much out there to help solve every single problem. So we're helping them kind of distinguish what's most appropriate to them and why and then they can go down to product to wear and find out about individual products. So a few days before social media marketing world, my laptop apparently died. So I knew <laughs> I needed a new one and I knew I wanted a Mac, but I didn't know if I wanted a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro. So I went in research mode and I watched a review and I also went on their website, uh, Apple's website, and I looked at the comparison between the features. Is that product aware or is that solution aware when I'm in that stage? So when you were looking at the features between the two things, 100% you're in product aware at that point. Okay. When you're looking at a review that's comparing and contrasting all the options, that's when you're in solution aware because you're looking broader level. But when you've gone, I want to look and compare these two things directly to one another, not have the opinion as to why these things, two things are different. You know, I would say that you probably hopped in straight at product aware because you knew that you wanted from a specific company and to like one of two specific things, but you still did a little bit of solution aware research to just make sure that you were in the right place. And generally we tend to do that. Is it fair to assume a lot of marketers assume their audience is product aware and this is where they do most of their marketing? Yes. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, 100%. Most marketers assume that their audience goes straight from problem aware to buying. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. Or they assume that people jump straight in at that. And you had to have some relationship with Mac beforehand to think straight to yourself, I want to go and buy that. It's not like you came in cold to that situation. You already had a relationship there. And so it was much easier for you. I presume it's probably your second, third, fourth, fifth product that you've bought from Apple. Like 20th, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, so you've got that relationship there already. So it's not a relationship you're starting from cold. So we can't compare that to the relationship that someone else might be starting from cold where you'd have to go on that whole journey. 
to get to that point to feel comfortable buying from that company. So there are a lot of marketers that are like, I don't want to reveal what the alternatives are in the industry with my marketing because that's going to send people away to the competition. What do you want to say to that? Oh, well, do you really want those people? <laughs> do, do, you, do you really want those people? So there's a, there's a couple of different things. We need to make sure that we've got the right audience. So our content that we create for our businesses is not just to attract people. It's also to repel people. So it's also to make sure that people who aren't a good fit for your company and who are going to waste your time and just be energy vampires are not the people that you're working with. So that's very important in its own. The other thing is that if you compare and contrast options and are honest with your audience, you will get better quality customers time and time again that stick around and spend more money with you. And it's not like we're saying, okay, here is this company over here who's way better than us at all these things. We're not doing that. We're saying, here's a company that offers copywriting services or, you know, we're a company, here's copywriting versus doing it with machine learning versus having someone in-house do it. You know, so it's very broad. We don't have to pick on individual companies. I would, however, encourage you to go down the route of being more clear. The more clear that you can be, the better quality lead. And if you ever need any justification for that, go read They Ask You Answer, which is Marcus's book, because he has fantastic justification for why you should compare and contrast things in depth. And he has all the case studies for that. But 100% compare and contrast things. People, people are going to do it anyway. They are not making a decision in a vacuum. So you can either be there to help them make that choice and to, to get that reward activation from helping go through that process, or you can leave it up to your competition to do it because they're going to do it. So it's your choice, really. So Kenda, when we see something that we're really excited about, or when our prospects and customers see something we're really, really excited about, what I'm learning from you today is that if, for whatever reason, once the price enters the equation is when people feel like they just got sick to their stomach <laughs> or they want to just flee from, from seeing a scary monster or something, right? And what's cool is that there's things we can do and we've just scratched the surface of what's possible. I would love people to go check out your book and the other resources that you've got because I know we've just, like I said, barely scratched at the edges of what's possible with neuroscience and marketing. So if people want to discover more about you, First of all, what's your preferred social platform? And secondly, where do you want to send them if they want to learn more about you and all the great stuff you got going on? Oh, that's nice. <laughs> preferred social is Twitter, even though I'm not 100% active. Twitter and LinkedIn, you got to do LinkedIn, right? Because we're in business. So hey-ho. Twitter and LinkedIn, by all means, is just underscore Kenna McDonald for Twitter. And LinkedIn is just Kenna McDonald. You can find me there. And then if you want to sort of divulge, I've got tons of free content available. I take my own advice as well. You can go and have a look on our website, just automationninjas.com. There's a fantastic blog that explains all of this. The book is called Hack the Buyer Brain. If you want to get more into the science behind all the stages of the customer lifecycle, that's all in that book. And then, of course, there is the course that you can go check out as well, which goes more into how to apply that to your demand generation if you're building out your own, your own journey. The Secret to My Demand Generation Success is the name of that course, right? Kenda McDonald, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was such fun. <laughs> hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 560. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? 
I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.